The Copyright Office's equivalent of small claims court has helped hundreds of people solve disputes. In its first year, the three-member Copyright Claims Board will help in cases worth up to $30,000. For a progress report, Claims Board member Brad Newberg. Mr. Newberg, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And by the way, you're fairly new to the government after a career in dealing with copyright cases as a private sector attorney, correct? That is right. I was the head of trademark and copyright litigation for McGuire Woods for years before coming here. So it must be interesting to see it from the inside after litigating it from the outside all these years. Oh, yeah. Two years in and I'm still getting used to uh, being a government employee. All right. Tell us more about the Copyright Claims Board. You've dealt with hundreds of cases. What typifies these cases that you've dealt with? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, it's for any copyright case that's a copyright infringement case, declaration for non-infringement, or what's called a misrepresentation claim for a DMCA takedown or counter notice that somebody put something false in that. That's for up to $30,000. Most of our cases are infringement cases, but we get a lot of the others as well. And it could be any type of work from photography to music to movies and and so on. Because there's been some famous copyright cases of music that have come up in the media and so on, big time, big dollars. But you're dealing with more small fry in general than than famous recording artists that have big albums and all that. That's true because of the limit and damages, the 30,000. So if you were to think that your work was infringed and became some number one hit, you probably wouldn't be going to us. But we have gotten a few smaller claims like that where people have said my work has been infringed and even have sued some larger music companies and such. And, and we've had cases like that. And before this board was established, what happened if people had a small claim, say someone copied a I don't know, a picture of flowers and sold it in a studio and said, well, wait a minute, that's a copy of my picture of flowers. Right. So the problem that this is aiming to solve, that the CCB is here for, and we call for short CCB, Copyright Claims Board, is that both sides, plaintiffs and defendants, felt priced out of the system, like they didn't have access to resolving their dispute. So your only option was federal court. Federal courts had original jurisdiction over copyright claims, and the average case in federal court could cost easily into the six figures. So if you had a claim that was worth even 30000 but five, ten thousand 10000 say, there was no real point. And what you had was copyright owners felt this is too expensive. I can't enforce my works. And if they did sue, you had users of copyright material feeling well, I have no choice but to settle. I can't defend myself. It's just going to cost too much. So it's a benefit for both sides for the CCB to be there. Yeah, to take someone to federal court, you might as well have a patent claim like a big corporation. They can afford that kind of dollars. But here we're talking about copyright. And so it might be smaller fry, smaller potatoes, I guess you might call it fried potatoes. I don't know. Right. Of course, as the CCB, I'm obligated to say that we think every case is important, but they are certainly for smaller value cases. And can you typify the cases that you've had, about the 500 so far in that first year or so of operation? Are they mostly visual arts? Are they, I mean, what kinds of copyrighted material tend to come in there? Sure. So one of the great things we've learned and that we're really excited about the last year is the diversity of types of works. So when we were launched, there was a thought that maybe we'd be all just photographs on the Internet. And while photography is the plurality of our cases, it's only about just under 40 percent 
of our cases, we have another 20% that are audiovisual works, whether it's movies or videos that are posted on the internet, as well as another 20% that are either musical works or sound recordings, and then everything from architecture to software. So yes, the most typical is a photography claim, but we've really been excited about how all sorts of artists and owners and, of course, copyright respondents, what we call defendants, are using the system. We're speaking with Brad Newberg. He's a member of the Copyright Claims Board, part of the Library of Congress. Do you ever get people that come with a trademark claim and you say, nope, sorry, you got to go across the river to another branch of government? Yes, we do. We put out a lot of educational materials. We have a website that people can go to. We have a handbook that takes people through each step from filing a claim all the way to the end. But we hope everybody reads it, but obviously not everyone does. And what we do is we have what's called a compliance review at the very beginning. So if someone files something where it's clearly not a copyright claim, something we can't handle, we can't handle things against foreign respondents, that doesn't get served. It doesn't become part of a real case. We send back a a non-compliance order to say, hey, this isn't going to work. And we do give an opportunity to fix it. But as you're mentioning, if someone's just got pure trademark case, they're not going to be able to fix that. And how does someone initiate a case? You don't have a physical courtroom or boardroom, right? It's all online, this whole process? That's right. We are completely virtual, so no one ever needs to travel for a CCB case. What we did, actually, and we're really proud of this, is we created a brand new filing system from scratch. So if you are an attorney in private practice, there is a filing system at courts um, called PACER, not to get too deep in the weeds, but it is literally you have to do everything yourself and you sort of upload it. What we did, knowing we would have a substantial amount of individuals and companies representing themselves, is we developed a completely new process called ECCV, not terribly original, but there it is. So people go and they file a claim there, and instead of just uploading something you have to figure out by yourself, ECCB walks a claimant through questions that they need to fill out to say, okay, here's my work, here's how it was infringed and when it was infringed and the type of harm I've had or what I'm looking for, and that way, rather than having to figure it out all themselves, claimants can just answer the questions to put together a claim on ECCB. And it can't be just someone was copied. They have to have obtained a copyright in the first place, right, for the work in question? So the way it works for us is that's mostly right. If you want to file a claim at the CCB, you have to either have a registration already on your copyright work. This is for copyright infringement cases, of course. Or you have to have put a completed application for registration with the copyright office. And the registration division is totally separate from CCB, but you still have to have done that and have to note that in your claim before you can proceed. So simply have putting something up on your website or published it to whatever it is you send things through, your Instagram, whatever the case might be, that doesn't constitute having a prior claim as a copyright itself would. Right. You can't just say, now you get, of course, copyright is automatic. Once you put pens to paper, you own a copyright. But you don't have a registration until you go through the Copyright Office procedures, and you need to do that at least at the application stage before you can file with us. And how are you getting the word out? I mean, the copyright community is millions and millions of people doing all of these activities that you mentioned, and most of them probably aren't all that aware of the Copyright Office, let alone of the CCB. 
So it's not as easy as one might think for a very small niche community of lawyers, like in terms of copyright infringement cases in general, and there are copyright lawyers. Here we are marketing to the entire public because anyone can have a copyright claim. So that makes it a little bit tougher. But of course, you know, we're speaking here today and the officers and our copyright claims attorneys and staff do other speaking engagements. We have the Copyright Office's um, Office of Information and Education. They put out tweets and news nets and blog posts. So we really do try to get the word out. But with, you know, 300 plus million citizens and any one of them can own a copyright because copyright is for everybody, it makes it a little bit tougher to get that word out. Sure. And just briefly, what was the germinating idea for the CCB? Was there legislation that brought this into being or is it something that Congress just said, go ahead and do this? So, no, it took a while. This is something that's been in the back of a lot of people's minds for a lot of years. It was brought up well over a decade ago. And then about a decade ago, the Copyright Office did a study on it showed just how much it was costing people in federal court. So there was a lot of back and forth and then uh, went through iterations. And at the very end of 2020, it was passed by Congress in what's called the CASE Act. And basically, the entire staff, including myself, was hired in the second half of 2021. And we spent just about a year putting together like I said, ECCB and promoting it and and letting people know about it and putting out all the regulations because, of course, the act sets up the skeleton, but the regulations are our day-to-day procedures. So there was a lot to be done before we could launch last June. And the board members, you and your two colleagues, then have the power, the authority to say, yes, this was an infringement and set damages for the infringer to pay the infringee. That's right. Up to $30,000 is what the claim can be. Now, there's statutory damages that people can elect that can be up to $15,000 per work infringed, which also is different than federal court, which can be up to $150,000. And then, like I said, there's other things in terms of the declaration of non-infringement, where we can just put a declaration out to say this activity is non-infringing, or like I said, with the misrepresentation, the false statements. The other thing I should mention is I said up to 30000 We actually also have, so it's very streamlined, the smaller claims that we have. There's no depositions. There's no subpoenas. There's streamlined discovery. But for an even more streamlined experience, let's say, uh, you can choose our smaller claims track, which is even a $5,000 cap with even less discovery. And it's much more customized to the case Um, And it's supposed to be sort of quicker and even more cost efficient for the parties. And unlike a court, you probably can't subpoena people or force them. If someone is accused of infringement, how do you get their backside into the court virtually, so to speak? So what happens similar to a court is once we find a claim compliant. So you mentioned the trademark claim that we wouldn't. Once we say, okay, this is compliant, at least follows our regulations, it's the type of case we can hear, then we tell the claimant, go ahead and serve this. And you would serve it like you do a federal complaint. So once a respondent is served, then they know, hey, there's a case here. And they have a couple of options. One is the CCB is actually voluntary for everyone. So they actually have 60 days in which they can opt out and say, look, I don't want to be part of the CCB. If the claimant wants to sue me, they need to go to federal court. Or they don't opt out. And then just like a court case, they would be here 
and they're subject to our jurisdiction, and we start handling it. We have a conference. We move the limited discovery we have forward, and then eventually we hear from the parties and we issue a decision. And in your job as a member of the CCB, you get to look at a lot of things and listen to a lot of things. We get to hear a lot of different stuff. And of course, as you can imagine, when two thirds of our parties are representing themselves, whether a business or an individual, you know, you get a lot more. Um, I, we haven't seen a lot of emotional cases, frankly, that I, I thought we might, but you get a lot more of individuals saying, look, I really want this wrong to be righted, as opposed to outside counsel of big companies that are just, you know, hey, it's another case for me. These cases are more personal to people. Brad Newberg is a member of the Copyright Claims Board, part of the Library of Congress, celebrating a little bit more than a year in business. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.